is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing James Cameron's 1986 deep space monsters versus military masterpiece, Aliens. When 20th Century Fox released the science fiction horror movie Alien in 1979, they almost immediately greenlit a sequel. But Hollywood being Hollywood, it took nearly seven years for the second movie to arrive in theaters. And when it did, it kind of felt like a sequel that nobody had particularly asked for. And it promised something rather different from the first movie, with an ominous tagline that read, this time it's war. The story takes place nearly 60 years after the events of, of Alien. Ellen Ripley, the sole survivor of the doomed spaceship Nostromo, is picked up by a deep space salvage team. And when she gets back home, nobody believes her story as to what happened. Since her harrowing encounter with the alien, the sinister Wayland yutani Corporation has unknowingly set up a terraforming colony on the planet where Ripley's crew first found the aliens in the original story. And when contact with the colony is abruptly lost, Ripley's brought in on a military expedition to make sure that everything at the colony is all right. It is not. And soon the colonial marines deployed will see that things are not as bad as Ripley made them out to be. They are a whole lot worse. This movie was helmed by a then up-and-coming Canadian filmmaker named James Cameron, who would go on to make a couple other movies people may have heard about, including one about a boat. But all kidding aside, Aliens really bowled over critics and audiences with its unique blend of storytelling styles and genre mashups. It's science fiction, it's action horror, it's war survival, and it's a story that somehow boils down to a pair of moms looking to defend their families. It's the kind of thing that must have looked awfully strange on paper, but when you see it on screen, well, there's a reason why this one's so widely considered to be one of the best science fiction movies ever made. Aliens redrew the boundaries of a lot of things in filmmaking, but none quite so much as its use of female protagonists. Ellen Ripley, the so-called final girl from Alien, was now something rather different leveling up from someone in need of saving to a formidable hero in her own right. She fights in a world where gender is really kind of a non-issue, and what matters most is how many combat drops you've really got, whether or not you're going to lose your cool when the mission goes south, whether you're going to really leave someone behind who can still be saved, whether you're going to use your last grenade to take a few of them out with you and get a storytelling trope named after you along the way, and whether you're going to use anything, even a walking forklift suit, to bring the fight to the bad guys. This movie is a shining example of everything that can go right in a movie. It has aged incredibly well over the, the last 30 or so plus years since it came out. And it stands in a very, very small class of films that are at least as good, if not better than, the masterpiece that precede them. I am thrilled to talk about this one tonight and have been ever since we talked about Alien last season. So let's pop open our cryosleep chambers and get to work. With me today is Hyperdyne Systems Behavioral Technician, Chris Crenshaw. Anytime, anywhere. Wayland Utani Sales Representative, Tom Hespos. Did you say 57 years? <laughs> and Colonial Marine Corps Community Liaison, Joe Pace. Yeah, that, that, uh, that's just common practice. We always have a synthetic on board. <laughs> Everyone, welcome. So I think I'm going to take the first moment of truth because it happens so early in the movie. It's a great scene that I think really ties together some of the themes from Alien and Aliens. Uh, and it's a really great bridging scene. It happens really moments after poor Ripley is brought out of hypersleep. She's learned that she has been adrift in space for 57 years. She has learned that she's basically out of time. And worse is that the company and the insurance companies and the shipping you know, trade association and the colonial government, they're all super unhappy that she blew up the Nostromo and don't understand why she did. And so there is an inquest into the reason why she did what she did at the end of the first movie. And she, of course, tells a story. And right off the bat, nobody really believes her. They think that her story is completely outlandish. She's going over it again and again and again. And there's one of the great details about it is that as she's in this boardroom talking with all these suits at the table, right? Everybody there is some sort of executive. She's there just in her simple, like kind of, you know, flight suit type civilian clothes and behind her is this this endlessly scrolling display showing the names photos and dossiers of all the slain crew members of the Nostromo there's this big running reminder of, of everybody who was lost right 
And it's a great detail because the company is putting it up there as if to remind Ripley just how much trouble she's in. And almost for Ripley, it's a reminder of just how much trouble they're in if they don't listen to what she has to say. And for me, the moment of truth in this scene, because it, it, it's just hard to watch. I mean, Ripley's getting beaten up. And we've already seen from the first movie that people don't want to listen to Ripley. Like if people just listen to her, <laughs> everything would be okay. But nobody listens to Ripley. And we see it again here. And here she's trying to explain, look, we went to this planet. We saw a whole lot of eggs there. And you guys need to be mindful. This place is dangerous. Don't go. And they, they flip it all back on her. You know, they sort of jettison what she said. And she's like, you know, IQs dropped sharply while I was away. You know, and she's sort of explaining how they came to the ship because the narrative they're spinning is that the Nostromo just landed for kicks. They just landed without any kind of company orders or anything. And Ripley's like, no, no, we were told to go there. And one of the executives at the table, she goes, and found something never recorded once in over 300 surveyed worlds, a creature that gestates inside a living human host. And Ripley goes, yeah. And, she, and then the, the suit goes, these are your words, and has concentrated acid for blood. And that, that little exchange, I just love so, so much, because th these are your words. I mean, that's like, it's such a condescending sort of effort to make Ripley feel like she is out of her depth. And Ripley is like, nobody understands the stakes that the stakes at play here. Nobody does but me. And you just really feel for Ripley's frustration. And at the end of the meeting, they pull her license. She loses her career. She's kind of persona non grata of the company. Of course, that's when it's revealed that the reason why they do all this is because, hey, presto, there's actually been a colony on this planet for 20 years, and they never complain about any kind of big monsters, so Ripley, you must be lying. And, and she's like, well, gee whiz, how come nobody told me this before this meeting even started? And you can just get the sense, like, the meeting, it was just, the whole thing was set up just to screw poor Ripley. Like, there was no real intent on clearing the air and finding facts. It's all about making sure you can peg Ripley for this and moving on. And it's, it's kind of astonishing because I work in the financial services sector. I appreciate what a long-term loss looks like. And it's kind of astonishing. We look at this movie again when you're a little bit older. You're like, man, these guys are screwing her for a loss that happened 60 years ago. Like they, like they, they haven't somehow, I don't know, like advertised the loss. Like they haven't figured this one out. Like why are they going after her now? Like it's just kind of astonishing. So anyway, that's my moment of truth. It, it's not for a movie that's known for its thrills and its excitement and it's, it's just, it's gusto and all the great stuff that we're going to get into. This is one of the cool quiet scenes that I just adore because it's just, it's so, it tells us a lot about Ripley. It tells us a lot about Waylon Utani. It tells us a lot about humanity's annoying tendency to completely ignore clear and present danger, even when it's staring it right in the face. And it happens again and again. We're seeing it right now, right? And so, you know, <laughs> it's just a great scene. I love it too, because it really like establishes another thing that became like a sci-fi uh, futurist trope, which is hyper-corporatism, you know? Yeah, yeah. You could tell like that they're really screwing her over in this meeting. And the way that they treat her too is very much like business executives treat the little guy. Like even as she's exiting the room and they've just made it, like they've just pinned this entire thing on her. And she talks to that one executive and finds out about this colony like talking to her like you know like he didn't just completely screw her which is exactly what happens in meetings all the time when you get <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. single yeah. out for that kind of treatment you know like oh it's not personal yeah, yeah. <laughs> I get like like his mood is so much better now that the meeting's over like oh well, you know it's we call them shaking big colonies <laughs> like dude like were you ever gonna tell her this information or no it's also where we find out there are 60 or 70 families yeah, families four two six families like oh boy the next shot i think is special edition stuff where we, we see the colony. They show us the colony in the next shot, and you see exactly what Ellen is trying to warn them about. <laughs> and like a soothsayer, everything she says is going to come to pass immediately comes to pass. Um, and it's just like, oh, man, you know, poor, poor Rip, poor Rip. One of the cool things about that scene, I, I do enjoy how they show the pictures of the uh, Nostromo crew. For me, I saw Aliens long before I saw Aliens. Uh, just based on you know, my age. I was 11 when Aliens came out and I remember seeing it with my brother and, and I didn't know anything about Alien. And so my first exposure to the members of the Nostromo were seeing their you know, faces in this. And then later when I went back and saw Alien, I'm like, oh, it was like, you know, prequel to me more yeah. than it was Aliens being a sequel. So I always kind of think back to those pictures being shown 
of they were all sort of secondary characters to me because yeah. I had never met them. They were just the guys who died died when Ripley didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I had kind of a similar experience to you, Joe, in that I, I had seen Alien before I saw Aliens, but only like a year before Aliens. And I'd only seen it like once, maybe twice. I loved it, but you know, it wasn't this deeply ingrained thing that I knew before I went in to see Aliens. So Aliens was like, I think this is one of the glories of the movie is that it works so well standalone. Even though it's a sequel, it's never approached as a sequel. It's approached as a second movie and a shared continuum, but it's like, you can see this movie without ever having seen Alien. It places you in the, in the position of, okay, what has Ripley seen? I haven't seen it. If you go into this movie cold, you're like one of the Marines. You don't, you're just trusting her to her word. Like she saw this really awful thing. It's got these really bad powers and let, let's see what she's talking about. And then when you see it, you're like, man, I wish I could unsee it because <laughs> this, thing is, this thing is gruesome and I really don't want to be part of this. And the movie works so well like that, doesn't it? It absolutely does. And, you know, and it's funny. I love the fact that this movie is the, it's, it's sort of near the tail end of the, the practical effects, right? And the, yeah. the xenomorph is so terrifying in this movie in large part because of the practical effects and not CGI. Like, oh, my uh, gosh. Yeah. No, I, I wholeheartedly agree. This movie is a triumph of practical effects. I mean, when, you know, I just watched it again today. And it is astonishing how well the visuals of this movie hold up. I mean, this movie, I think, is about 34 years old at this point. And it really, it, it has aged way, way, way better than most other movies of its type oh my from, from the time. Yeah. I watched it at about 2 o'clock this morning uh, when I couldn't sleep. And I just pulled it up and, and, and watched it and was so subsumed in the, in the world that they, that they created that, honestly, like, it, it's an example of... The practical effects are so damn good yeah. that this is when, to me, the xenomorph is, is peak terrifying. A CGI xenomorph really doesn't scare me much at all. It's just, you know, it's kind of like the, the whole Android Valley effect. Yeah. I just find CGI effects to be deeply unscary. It just breaks the suspension there. They did practical effects, I mean, for the forklift suit, for all the aliens. I mean, they did so much of it was practical. And even when they did some rear projection and, you know, blue screening and all that, it was for the day extremely well done i mean there are other movies you see where they do the blue screen it just does not hold up so aliens right. i mean apart from everything else like the effects are great but what makes the movie fantastic for me really is the story and the fact that you yeah. care about these characters but yeah quick shout out to the visuals which are just astonishing start to finish <laughs> and they are aging like wine and it makes me so happy man the script is good yeah this is just a really really good script and yeah. And having watched the extended edition and knowing, I mean, there, like, there's got to be 40 minutes of extra stuff in there. It's a lot, <laughs> a lot. It's a fair bit. Um, yeah. And, and, and it still works. I mean, yeah. you know, that wasn't just fat that they trimmed. Yeah. Like it's still, it still works like as a, as a story. Yeah. So well, yeah. As yeah. I watched a special edition today, I marveled at, not just how good the thing was written, but uh, but at how well the theatrical version was edited. Absolutely. Because that editing was done so crisp and clean that when you watch the, the, the theatrical version, you're not thinking, oh, wait, hold it. I just missed something. Why, what did they jump over? You have no clue. So when you see the special edition, all that new stuff, it's all Easter eggs. You're like, oh, my gosh, this is so new. I didn't realize that you needed this. And you're so glad it's there. But yeah, that, the editing in the first, the original edition is, is supremely, supremely well done. I want to come back to yeah, this. Yeah, no, no, no and, and we, I mean, we definitely will. So I think this might be a good time for us to move on to the next moment of truth. Joe, we're going to go to you because I just mentioned the company. Your moment of truth is about our favorite company man, Carter J. Burke. So please lay it on us. What is your moment of truth? Walk us through the moment of truth scene and then let us know why this scene matters so much to you. I, I do think it's funny how this is an action adventure movie, which I think when we were all of a certain age totally appealed to us, right? It's, it's a lot of fun and thrills and all that, but it's some of the quieter moments that make it so durably compelling. And a huge component of that is, you know, Wayland Yutani and the, this sort of big faceless corporation that we remember from the, from the first movie. But this movie gives it a face and it gives us junior executive Carter Burke, who to this day remains one of my favorite characters. And I was immediately fell in love with, with that characterization and the acting job by Paul Reiser, quite frankly. Yeah which is, is out of this world. And he essentially took a, a comic, a stand-up comic, and asked them to perform this role, and he knocks it out of the park. And 
Um, he is chillingly terrifying. He's a sociopath, but you don't know that. When you meet him, he seems like a good guy. He tells you he's a good guy, right? He tells people, I'm, 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 yeah, you know, I'm a company man, but I'm a good guy. <laughs> and um, he's buddy-buddy, and he plays. he actually plays Ripley like a violin early on to get information out of her. But meanwhile, this guy is, you mentioned in your introduction, Bill, that the, the company unknowingly established this colony. Well, Carter knew. They knew that they, they had done their homework and they knew that this colony was in a place that was dangerous. They'd been wanting to get their hands on these xenomorphs for, they're, they're worth millions to the, to the bioweapons division. <laughs> True. But we don't know. Throughout the first half of the movie, we think Burke is an ally. We think he's there, that he's a, a an advisor from the company. He's there to make sure they have the resources they need and that they're able to get what they want. And the first inkling that we really get that he's playing another game is after the Marines get their butts kicked and they find out that this is not going well at all as an operation. And they say, we're just going to go up and nuke it from space. And he said, well, hold on a minute. He says, this, this is a multi-million dollar installation. This is a value. And, and he plays his cards as there are assets here that I'm not willing to sacrifice. And he makes it sound like the assets are the facility or, you know, their lives. But all of us, I think our spidey sense goes off that, huh, uh, there's more, there's another deeper game that this, that this guy is playing. And of course it becomes apparent as the movie goes along that he's looking to acquire some of the xenomorphs. Um, and he, and he, and he baldly talks about it. He tries to, he tries to co-opt Ripley onto his side by telling that, you know, listen, we can both make out in this deal. Uh, and, and when she, refuses he's kind of like what's the matter with you i thought you were smarter than this i thought that you were a survivor who was going to you know come in and i was all ready to cut you in and we do this thing together but he is so unaffected by people um hating him he's unaffected by people giving him a hard time and he, he is a, a slick talker he's an operator and the best part about it is he's still a junior executive this guy isn't even top management He's a climber within the company. The company loves him. Uh, and they're going to love him more if he wins in this movie, which, of course, he doesn't. Yeah. But why, why it speaks to me so much, I'll just say one last thing, which is when I saw this, this movie as a you know, preteen, essentially, like I was, I've never been a badass in my life. It's just never been part of my, my makeup. And I've always been drawn to people that make their way through the, the, the tough world by virtue not of their brawn but of their brains that are that are able to think their way through situations and to find the angle and to get their way through and what i love about about carter burke is he's he's with all these marines with their big guns and their big bustles but he's pulling the strings on every single one of them and he is if, if not for ripley he's going to succeed and he's going to get what he wants out of this operation and I, I just, I love that so much that everyone else is loving hicks and and you know all these guys are you know tough guys yeah. and and He's just kind of coolly there playing his game. And I dug that the most. Yeah. He's got the same playbook, by the way, as like an A&R guy from Atlantic Records. <laughs> I mean, he's playing everybody. Yeah. And you don't realize it right away. <laughs> I, I think it says a lot about the quality of Paul Reiser's performance in this movie. <laughs> Uh, that um, I heard a story that he did such a good job playing the galaxy's greatest scumbag that even his own, like Paul Reiser's mom was happy when Burke dies in the movie. Like, she, like yeah. his sister punched him in the theater. <laughs> that's, that's what that story goes is that his parents are like, I'm glad you're dead. And his sister hit him. And he's like, I did a great job. Mission <laughs> accomplished. Yeah. When, yeah you know. In the light of the special edition, I'd like to point out to sort of fill out what you were saying about him, Joe, the company had forgotten about the signal, apparently. That, I mean, that, that's what I'm reading into, into the, the events of the first half of the film. It's only after Ripley comes back that somebody, almost certainly Carter J. Burke, yeah. sends a, a family of prospectors out to that ship. Yeah. And, I mean... <laughs> he made a call. Bad. It was a bad call. He made a call. He made it was a, a bad, bad call. <laughs> the way he delivers that, it's like it's just, it's just like, it, it's like, you know what? We just, we lost this investment. What can we say? Write it off. Like, it was on a balance sheet. You know, to your point, Joe. You know, I, I often like to talk about how I mean, this movie gets held up as this really, really great science fiction action adventure movie, right? And it very much is, but. I always like to remember that this movie has not forgotten its horror roots whatsoever. And I think that this movie is as much a horror movie as it is an, an adventure movie or an action movie. But the thing is, is that the horror 
like the aliens are scary, but they do not deliver the horror in this movie. I think Burke delivers the horror of this movie. When you realize that the guy who's most empowered to save you or damn you is this guy, then you realize just how far from home you really are and just how out, out of the safety zone you really are. Well, right. What's the best horror scene of the movie? It's Ripley and Newt in that, yeah, room, in that room with the face yeah. hunters. And he and did the total it. reveal when she's waving to the camera and you see the readout and just you see the little <laughs> click and just looks over his shoulder and like, oh, no. <laughs> like, dude. And the great thing about this is that, like you mentioned, you know, how he's an ally for the first part of the movie. Getting back to my moment of truth, he's the only one who does listen to Ripley. Like it inverts the whole yeah. thing. Like why won't people listen to Ripley? Well, guess what? The, the worst guy in the galaxy dies and oh man like poor ripley gets even more screwed because somebody listens to her you know and it's just it's just it just never gets better <laughs> it's never it's better for these guys that to me is an opportunity to tie it back to alien uh which i think in a much more subtle way was doing the same thing with you know economics and, and corporatism yeah. Uh, much more obvious and and upfront here. You well, know? it's the difference between the seventies and the eighties. In the eighties, we, 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 we spell it out for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but, but also, I mean, the eighties. It was much more of a comment on like the way we looked at big business and how it portrayed itself in the eighties. This is you know a hyper capitalist time. It's Wall Street and the whole Wall Street the thing. Exactly. Street, so yeah. really, yeah, yeah. Reagan eighties. You know? Yeah, you know, because I mean, Alien gets into the notion of like being out in space is actually not a glamorous or heroic job. It is in fact a crappy job and the only people who are out there are the people who have no better prospects and so there are these that's why you are driving a big 18 wheeler in space right <laughs> going to horrible places to other horrible places right it's a terrible job and nobody's proud to have it and so you know the company that runs all that they know that score they're trading on that score so they're just they're, they can you know they're like yes we don't give a crap about you and you know that. So just, let's stop giving a crap about each other. Do the terrible thing we asked you to do and move on, right? We don't care. Like there's just a total lack of empathy in Alien and you kind of expect that because they're so distant, right? And it's like- Yeah, but I'd really like to discuss the bonus situation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll get whatever's coming to you. To your point, Joe, Waylon Utani is less scary the less you know about it. Like the scariest thing you could have done is put a face on it. And they do that here with Burke who's like not even the worst among them. And you're like, oh my gosh, this well has no bottom. And you realize just how awful they can be when they're up close to you. When they're far away, they're bad enough. Like go to some dangerous planet and you know, there's probably a thing there and pick it up, bring it home. And either you don't need to know about it or you don't. We don't really care. Anyway, goodbye, click, <laughs> right? But Burke is like, maybe I'll just screw all of you to your faces. And this, yeah, like it's, just, it's so much more sinister, even though it's wrapped up in this smiling package. And Burke is so, on the surface, kind of likable. And he's sort of a, a chummy guy. And you listen to it the way he talks. You're like, maybe I should listen to him. And you're like, no, don't listen to him. He's terrible. You know, I, it's, I, it's really worth noting that this is a company ship, apparently. The, the Sulaco? Yeah, that's why, the, that's why Bishop's on it. Bishop... He's a company machine, but he is a part of that military crew. But see, I got the feeling that he was an adjunct to it. And like, there are different forces at work. There's the ICC, I think it is, which is like the inter like the, right. the trading consortium that kind of handles interstellar trade. There's like the colonial government that, that handles the actual governing of things. There's the Marines, which is their military wing. And then there's companies like Wayland Utani. I don't think it's clear that the Sulaco is actually owned by WT. I, I am basing this on Carter Burke's quote when it's revealed that bishop is is an android right. or a synthetic or an artificial person he, he's like well uh, you know all all company ships have one i mean that's just a standard operating yeah, like it's a wrench or something that came from the tool. yeah you know? at the least it's putting corporate corporations in like sponsorship relationships with the military oh, for sure there's at there's least. definitely like an east india company kind of situation going on yeah here for sure for sure yeah and frankly, it may be irrelevant who really owns a ship because the point is the ship is going out to do company bidding and to exactly. look after company interests. You know, um, it's not like it's looking after voters, right? It's 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 going out, it's it's helping <laughs> out shareholders, right? So so there you know there there you have it. One of my favorite lines from this movie, and this movie is replete with often quoted lines, is uh you know at the end when um you know Burke's plot to you know infect them and sneak home some xenomorphs and make a killing no pun intended uh developing them into weapons and all that and like ripley figures them out burke is like he's being sweated out like all the the, the remaining marines are all looking around him you know, and Ripley, ripley's like you know laying it out and like trying to figure out what to do and you can tell like they're going to put a bullet in him pretty shortly right 
Um, and the only thing that saves him is that the, the big alien attack actually interrupts this very swift trial and execution kind of thing they're about ready to do to him. But it's when, like, his final words are just this, like, <laughs> indignant, petulant, like, he's like, just just listen to yourself, right? This is, this is nuts. It's paranoid delusions, you know? It, it, it's, it, 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 it's really sad. It, it's pathetic. <laughs> like, he just turns back on them and, like, just, cause he gets a scolding and, like, it's clear, like, he's just going to go all in because this is all he has and he just delivers it and you're like, what, you, how are you talking to gun-toting Marines like that? But he does and it's so well done. I love it. Gaslighting is just natural, right? <laughs> he knows that they're not going to respect him groveling or begging, so his only choice is to brass it out yeah. and try to demonstrate that he's still the alpha. Yeah, the truth is just a malleable commodity, right? Like, like truth is just something, it's just a means to an end, and to be used and shaped and molded and discarded at will, at discretion, because that's just, you know, whatever. It's like, the point is, he's, he's totally opportunistic and totally Machiavellian. He's like, the ends justify the means, and the ends are whatever I want, and... Even by Wayland Utani standards, Burke is a, is a bastard because he wants to set up himself, not the company. He's like, you know, we'll be set up for life. If helping the company develop these profitable bioweapons is a way to do it, that's great. And doesn't even give a thought to, dude, where are they going to use those bioweapons? Like, good right. grief. Like, can you just imagine some space dirigible dropping alien eggs on some other planet? Like, we'll be back in 20 years when it's a little calm down. See ya. Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Having seen a later movie, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it's like, oh, oh. Just... hey, listen, that's all that is—a smallpox blankets and, and alcohol, baby. That's all. Pretty, it is. Yeah, pretty much, exactly. And he's like, he's okay with that. He's like, I like blankets. The East India Company was okay with it too. They sure were. They sure were. Mm-hmm. So, I think let, this is as, as good a time as any to move on to the next moment of truth, which is um, for Chris. It's a, a neat moment because it comes from the special edition of the movie. And for those who haven't seen the special edition, there are really two versions of Aliens. And honestly, nowadays, it's not a big surprise. A lot of movies have director's cuts to them and all that. But Aliens, you know, it had like an extra 12 minutes chopped off of it because the studios were so afraid that the long runtime would hurt the movie. So like, we well, got to get rid of some stuff. And they did, but the stuff they got rid of was awesome. It was so good. Right, so this is a good time to move on to our next moment of truth. So, Tom, I'm going to go to you. In a movie that kind of redefines badass movie heroes, this moment is kind of a badass moment, even among that standard. So walk us through your moment of truth and why it's your moment of truth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it is kind of like a redefining thing, isn't it? When we first see Ripley in the forklift suit as the xenomorph queen is trying to flush Newt out from beneath the grates in the cargo bay. And you get this great moment when the door like slowly opens and there's Ripley ready to go to town. And she looks right at the queen and she says, get away from her, you bitch. <laughs> and it's on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and why that's so great, it's a culmination of a couple of different things that are going on there. The first, I think we talked about a little bit already, but you know we've got this second movie now where nobody seems to want to listen to females with expertise. <laughs> and, and what I mean by that is going back to the, the last movie, everybody you know just seems to ignore Ripley and, and the consequences are just dire every single time. I have to refer to this external thing because it's just so funny that honest movie trailers, uh, <laughs> is hysterical because it has this like rapid fire series of clips. And it's like every time somebody told Ripley to shut up or just ignore yeah. her when they said something, when she said something important. <laughs> yeah. And it's just fantastic because it, it, you know, they just sum it up in like this, you know, 10 seconds and, and it's hilarious. But, you know, she was the one who didn't want to break quarantine and bring the first alien in that started this whole thing in the last movie. And she's basically been ignored ever since. And now it's not just her, it's 10-year-old Newt, too, who, you know, she's the sole survivor in this installation on this planet. And the contingent of space marines ignores her, too. Yeah. Remember, like, the, the scene where Ripley brings Newt back to safety and she's trying to reassure her and, you know, calm her down because, you know, her parents and their brother are just killed. And, you know, she tells Newt, you're, you're among soldiers and they're going to protect her. And she says, it won't make any difference. Like, that was such a great line because so good. she Chilling. knew what was up and <laughs> you ignore her too. Yeah, yeah. yeah this, Apparently, this, you know, as an aside, 
that little the little girl it's the only acting Carrie she's Hand. ever had. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and she was picked out of, I guess they had open auditions at this British school and they had, where they were, I guess, filming near there. And there were 300 uh, auditions. And a lot of them were people with acting experience or whatever. And they picked her because she had never had any. And she didn't, like these other girls, other 10-year-old girls would deliver the lines and kind of do a cutesy smile at the end or whatever. And she never did any of that. And they were like, that is like exactly what we're looking for. Yeah, it's our girl. And, uh, <laughs> Probably she had the best scream too. Yeah, yeah. 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 Right. that yeah, was a great scream. Good scream. Yeah, for real, Newt is an absolute badass. She is, and, and oh, it has yeah. to be acknowledged. Yes, absolutely. Absolute badass. She's hard as nails, that kid. And, and what do we do with female, you know, badasses in this film? We ignore them. <laughs> it's awful. It's awful. I hate yeah. to laugh. Yeah, yeah. Let me just give you my favorite line from the movie. Yeah. Why don't you put her in charge? Because <laughs> Hudson, Hudson is best when he's losing his marbles, but is still kind of right. <laughs> Yeah, it's like you know, <laughs> but to your point though, Tom, like remember, there's a great scene when Gorman and Dietrich are trying to, you know, they're trying to, you know, give her some diagnosis and they just can't get her to talk. And Gorman's like, total brain lock, we're wasting our time. And just he just gives up on this little girl so easily, right? He just, just doesn't even give her the time of day, doesn't give her, yeah. And like, but the thing is, like, for me, I don't know how it is for you, but like, th- that all <laughs> builds up through the movie, yeah. Ripley didn't want to go on the trip in the first place, she like. She was the one who wanted to nuke the site from orbit. You know, like all these things where they just they didn't listen to her. And she warned everybody over and over and over again that they yeah. didn't know what they were up against. Ignored. Yeah. Every single time. Yeah. And that builds up. So, you know, you get back to the scene I'm calling out here. This is what Ripley does, though, right? I mean, she did it in the last movie. She's ignored and everybody is now either dead or they're out of action as a consequence. And Ripley just goes to work and we all know it's coming <laughs> and we feel bad for her for being ignored up until that point but we just can't wait for her to be a badass so like that's like the big the first thing that's been building all movie when you hit this scene yeah and the other thing that's going on of course you mentioned it bill but like from the moment we first encountered newt she's looking at ripley as a mother figure and you know we know that from earlier in the movie, of course, you know, they've said to her that Ripley's been asleep for 57 years and she's been adrift for so long. She's basically outlived her own daughter and will never get the chance to reconnect with her. And, you know, the second you see Newt, it's almost like Newt's taking like her daughter's place. Mm -hmm. Ripley's immediately drawn to her, goes after her, won't stop until she's rescued her. Yeah. She goes back into the nest of xenomorphs and she's, you know, confident that Newt is still alive, never gives up on her. And, you know, now as this scene starts, you have Newt, you know, back to squeezing through the tight spaces and she's hiding from the queen that's pursuing her. You know, the queen's lifting up all the grates trying to flush her out. That's a hard moment, And then you see that door just slowly lift up and out strides Ripley in the forklift suit and she delivers the famous line. And like right there, you realize it's about mother versus mother. Yeah. So it's like Ripley's just killed, exterminated like most of the Queen's offspring. It's personal now. And the Queen's going to even the score by getting Newt. And it's that sort of like primal, never get in between a mother bear and her cub thing that's like really driving all of it. Yeah. It's like the purest sort of girl power you can get. Ripley's in the situation because she's dismissed, she's not listened to, and there's all that righteous anger. And then you get the whole like, my cub is threatened thing. And those two things come together and it's like a force in nature when they start. <laughs> yeah. I love, I love the, so good. the scene just, just before that when, when she does torch all the, all the, oh yeah. Kids, when she looks at like, there's that moment where she and the queen look at each other and there's this recognition, right? Yeah. There's that recognition of these two alpha females. Yeah. And there's this moment where Ripley's like, I'm going to torch all of these. And the queen tells the other guys to back off, right? Like, just, yeah, yeah. just back off. And so there's this understanding, right? They've reached this tacit detente. And Ripley starts to back away, back away. And then she just looks over her shoulder and she's like, no, it just torches them all anyway. Because an egg started to open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and she gives, like, classic head nod, like, yeah, no. no. <laughs> no they've all got to go. Shit all goes. And, and I think it's important to note, movies like this, whether it's Indiana Jones and Harrison Ford, or whatever, like, these iconic characters, are impossible to separate from the, the performer, right? From the actor. That, and, and Sigourney Weaver yeah. does an amazing job in these movies. But the look that Sigourney Weaver has, is, she's a beautiful woman who is amazingly somehow feral and terrifying. Just like the, the look of her face. 
Yeah. And I don't know that Ripley works with a less chiseled, less angular. Do you know what I mean? Like there's there's something about her physiognomy that drives um, the ferocity. If you say she's masculine, I am going to just step. Not back. in the slightest. Not in the slightest. <laughs> not, 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 not even a little bit. About it. No. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I never said that. I never said she was masculine. But she has a she has this like fierce angular. Well, she, you know what I mean? It's, well, it's, I do know what well, you mean. She's got this look that last time when she's like going into the nest to kind of rescue Newt. I mean, for a scene that is replete with gunfire and flamethrower blasts and grenade launching and all that sort of stuff and a collapsing, you know, facility, there's actually some really nuanced acting going on there, you know, especially in that scene where, you know, I mean, there's all this communication with the subtlest of, of facial expressions, you know, and, and you can see she's like, we can be cool. We can be cool. And it's like, it's when that egg opens up and she just sets her jaw. She's like, Oh, and like, she just taps into that that well that when I think about the character of Ripley, she's so resilient. She's been dealing with so much crap all this time, and nothing has ever broken her. And so she's like, "All right, this this I'm not gonna I'm not gonna start breaking now." And she just like that's her superpower. She's just like, "All right, time to go back to the well one more time." And that's when you I think Joe, when you see that in her face a lot, is that that she that energy she she turns it on. You're like, man, you do not want to be the person that makes Ellen Ripley have to turn it on. In your direction because bad things are going to happen <laughs> you know it's like what i love about that scene <laughs> is actually actually kind of a repudiation of your point tom because everybody ignores ellen ripley but ellen ripley goes into there alone and and does what a squad of marines couldn't do with a sh- just a ton of guns and grenades and everything and and she... well, they loosen the pickle jar i mean i think they loosen the pickle jar <laughs> a little bit right <laughs> Sure, and they had killed most of the drones back at the colony, but she goes in. If they had just sent like eight Ellen Ripley's, <laughs> it would have been done. Yeah, there are the are there are, You're there making are my point Ripley. for me, Chris. Eight? eight? You say eight? All you needed was one, really. <laughs> I live for those moments in movies when you just want to stand up and cheer, even when you've seen the movie twenty times. And that's a moment where honestly, I just want to get up and just like, I just want to shout. That scene is so high intensity, right? And it's just like, you just see the queen, she's like looking and just pulling these grates. And it's just like, you know, Newt is like moving and she finally gets cornered. Like, this is it. And all of a sudden the door opens up and it's a master, it's a masterful use of sound. Because all of a sudden it, it just stops and it gets quiet. You see the alien turn and that, and they take their time with it. And then they take the time with her walking out. You hear that, Rink choo, rink choo, rink, like and every that's all you hear. That's all that you all hear, you hear is the footfalls, this forklift suit, like boom, boom, and it's like it just sets it up, like oh, Clash of the Titans. This is it, and and it just it sets up. So when she delivers that line, theaters erupt, people jump off their couch. Like it's just such a perfectly delivered line. It's like a lightning bolt from Olympus. It's so good. I saw it in the theater. And uh, and people did cheer, and that's the first time I ever remember that happening. Yeah, in a movie, movie theater. theater. Yeah. yeah, you know, one of the things that I like so much about that particular moment too is, you know, I keep talking about how this is an action movie. It's also a horror movie, and and you know, the corporate side of it is really where the horror comes from. But there are st- still some horror roots in the action, and that for really the entire movie, the Marines are never really on the offensive, right? From the first engagement on, they are constantly fighting some kind of rear guard, retreat kind of survival type thing. They're never actually going on the offensive at all. You know, the first encounter is them getting ambushed and then just trying to make it to APC and get out of there. The scene that Chris is going to talk about is simply it's a holding the line scene, the big fight in the command center. It Again, it's this massive cover your back, we got to get the heck out of here kind of scene. And they're great and they're heroic, but they're not like our heroes taken to the bad guys kind of thing. You never see that at all in this movie. And this is the first time you finally see somebody, they actually flip the script on the bad guys. And it's Ellen Ripley walking out against the biggest one of them all, just no fear in her eyes. And she's like, all right, okay. You want to throw down? Let's throw down. And that's, that's part of the emotional release of this is that the entire movie, as exciting as it is, you feel like you're on the back foot. And finally, Ellen is here to go, yeah, no, uh-uh, get away from her. <laughs> like, I'm going to crush your head like a nut. And it's like, ah, it just, it's so good. It's so fantastic to see it. 
I love too that she picks that piece of like equipment to go after the queen too. Like you see it, you know, referenced earlier in the movie because like yeah. basically Ripley's not one to sit around and like let all these people do stuff for her. And she's like, right. Oh, you know, I can run that forklift, you know, just trying to be useful and, and trying and she ends up, you yeah. know, like helping them load up all their new <laughs> Bay 12, please. <laughs> And, you know, you realize that she's competent at this because this is the thing she's been doing since they kicked her out of the thing she had been doing. Yeah. The space Right. Market. Yeah. She's uh, a stevedore now. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, that she picked that. It's just like it's another notch for like the resourcefulness of the character. And it's just it's perfect. It's perfect. It really. Is. Well, with that, I think I'd like to move on to the next moment of truth, which is Chris's. And I know. This one is a really neat one because it references something very, very specifically from the special edition of the movie. You know, at the time, you know, what a lot of people didn't realize is that there were two editions of this movie, right? There was the theatrical version, and then there was a special edition, which I think had, I think, something like 12 or so additional minutes, maybe even more added to it, that had been cut for time. Those scenes that are cut are so, so, so good. And we live in an age now where there are often multiple versions of movies. It's not uncommon to see a director's cut, but the special edition was really kind of kind of an unusual thing. It was interesting because there were scenes that were cut from the theatrical version that were put back in for the televised version. So people are like, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what's going on here? So there's been kind of a neat version history with this movie. But I know, Chris, your moment of truth comes from one of these scenes from the special edition. So can you talk us through this scene and why it's your moment of truth? My scene actually was originally added, I believe, for the television version and retained for the special edition. I don't think the television version had the all of the extra stuff on LV-426 with the colonists. Mm -hmm. They cut out some of the stuff with Ripley and the hospital. Honestly, I, I do think that the theatrical version is probably the best version of the movie. I, the, the pacing is just stellar. Right. The special edition slows it down a lot. But that does sort of return the dread that the original movie it's the, had. It's the Ridley I, Scott version of the movie. Kind of, yeah. That's fair. But this scene that I love so much is the scene where they have just had their asses handed to them. Uh, in the beneath the power exchange or the heat exchangers in, in the alien's nest. And they've retreated back to the colony in the administration building with medical and they're barricading themselves in. They set up these auto guns, two pairs of auto guns uh, at uh, different choke points. And I, I, I remember the first time I saw this scene, presumably on television, and I was stunned. You know, I was like, I had never seen something on a television version of a movie that wasn't in the movie. Yeah. And this scene was so dramatic. It was, it inserts a, within the context of the, of this larger sequence where they're, they are being besieged by the aliens, it inserts like a new movement in that symphony. Mm -hmm. And you reach a crescendo as, as these guns fire and run out of ammo. That is just it's just as effective as anything that comes after, I think. Yeah. I, I think it's the best deleted scene ever. I cannot imagine the intestinal fortitude of the editor that removed it. Yeah. Because it's it's just such a good scene. And the guy was like, you know what? We could lose this. That's I mean, that's that is yeah. cold blooded. <laughs> and, 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 and it works yeah. I mean it you know, the, the movie works without it it totally works without it but I love this scene yeah well to speak about, about the editing I mean again I just saw the special edition today and it's like there are conversations where they're dropping in real quick references to these auto guns to set them up and they clip them out so surgically for the theatrical version that you never even knew these little just a sentence here a sentence there just lift it up and like you never even you never exactly. even know it's so i mean the editing was so well done that they took out a scene that was this well entrenched in the writing that you never noticed it wasn't there to begin with when you watch the scene though it's this great ah oh, it's so awesome because a lot of the action in the movie is actually really um hard to see like intentionally, like that first fight and they get ambushed, oh, yeah. you know, a lot of it, when the fight really starts to kick off, you're really seeing it through those cameras the Marines have. So you're seeing somebody else's feed on what's happening and switch to somebody else's feed. And this, the camera footage is all crappy. Like what, what is going on? I can't tell. I can't see. And that's what they want you to come away with. It's, it's just chaos. It's like the fog of war. You can't see the aliens happening. When these sentry guns, like this massive wave of aliens attack, it's like the second battle of the movie. 
and they come down and these two these auto guns just start chopping off right just pow, 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 pow. and all we see is these guys looking at the remote screen and you're just seeing like the heat of the gun and the ammo counter going down and you can just hear over intercom the squeals of the aliens are like getting blasted you see very very little of the actual aliens getting shot you see the gun shooting but like they leave it all to your imagination and it's such an incredibly awesome scene and you see so little in it it's so tense i was freaking out all the way through that because like you see the ammo count going down and how fast it goes down yeah. in the beginning you're like oh <laughs> they are not gonna have enough bullets <laughs> yeah, for this. exactly <laughs> like please stop being so wasteful with the ammo like we need it yeah, yeah right <laughs> every video game player ever is like uh... yeah. oh yeah so you should have these things one behind another and it Activate them sequentially, oh, for God's dude, sake. My, my Warcraft, like, you know, Starcraft player comes out immediately. Like, oh my God, stagger your guns. Don't put the two at the same time. Like, it's like, make them work for it, you know? It's like, yeah. Yeah, my my real-time strategy sense has a, has a real hard time with that scene just because you're like, well, you know, you often get, don't get a whole lot of really good views of the aliens themselves. You get these quick fleeting glimpses, you know? And I'm sure part of it was, from the practical effects, right? The more you see a guy in a Xenomorph suit, the worse you know they look. The, the more it looks like a guy in a Xenomorph suit. <laughs> but by doing it so fleetingly, like they craft this spell over you, and the gun scene is like, oh man, like there's just so many of these aliens, and these two, I mean, they're like they're like space fifty cals, right? They're just going off, and you're like, dude, two thousand rounds, <laughs> and still it didn't decimate the whole high. Like that's how much trouble these Marines are in, you know. And I just I just love that scene. And that's another reason I do love it, actually, Bill, is that it it kind of explains why it wasn't harder for Ripley, for one yeah. thing, you know, because I mean, and why why any of them survived the encounter at all, yeah, because. They had killed so damn many yeah, of them. Yeah, the robot guns deserve medals. Like pour one out for the robot yeah. guns because they, they did they did a lot of awfully good work. They really they really did. I love the extra footage in these extra scenes. I loved seeing the the terraforming you know colony at work and the family and. But you're right. I think the theatrical version is a tighter version, and I don't think the movie is any less for not having these scenes. I will say that once you get to know the theatrical version checking out the special edition is an awful lot of fun because you're like, oh, great, something more of a world that I already love. Like, Absolutely. At that point, these scenes, they're not going to meaningfully change how you interpret the story. It's just like a little extra kind of stuff on there. You know, as an experience, it's almost required. If you, if you like Aliens, you, you have to watch it. It really opens up the story a lot yeah. and, and makes it, I mean, you get the same idea, but, you know, humanizing those colonists and, and, and all that was... It's interesting. It's yeah, cool. yeah. How do you guys feel about like special editions in general? Because I know for a long time, things like this, scenes like this were kind of relegated almost to cinematic lore. You heard about, oh, this movie has a different ending. This movie had this scene never heard about. And then, you know, when DVDs came around, all of a sudden director's cuts and deleted scenes and footage that normally the public would never see became kind of common. Especially when you like, the kind of nerd stuff we like. Oh, for sure. There, there, there is will be a day when I watch all of the Lord of the Rings, you know, extended director's cut. That'll happen someday. I haven't ever seen any of them. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I tend to prefer them though when they come in that you know director's cut sort of package where mm -hmm. everything's integrated in. Like, yeah. You know, at the end of the movie, you know, at the end of the DVD, getting to poke through the deleted scenes. I mean, that's fun, but like. I really like seeing, you know, how it was originally intended, like before all the edits happened. Like, that's just really a whole lot of fun for me. It's like, if you've ever had to cut something back creatively that you've done, like one time I had to take a song that I wrote and, and you know, just get it down to like 30 seconds yeah. to be a commercial background for something. Yeah. You're like, wow, you know, like the people are never going to get to hear the rest of that song. Yeah. Like, it's got to be so satisfying, you know, as a director or whatever that you uh, get to get that stuff out mm -hmm. there. And I like seeing it the way that it, it was sort of like originally intended, yeah. no matter how good the editing is and how much better yeah. they made the film for, for editing. Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, there is there is the reality that not everybody wants a three-hour movie, right? I mean, I, we, I think the people's appetite for that has extended in recent years, but especially where, you know, you're watching it at home now. It's not a theater experience. You can sit and watch it at home and you can, you know, have bathroom breaks and stuff. And so, you know, yeah, if you can give me a, you know, a three hour movie of something that I love and, and, and it's an hour of more stuff. That's, that's good. Absolutely. That'd be, that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, I guess, I guess Tom really nailed it, which is like you get to see the original vision of the movie and you get to see it, what it looks like before external forces kind of chop the movie back. I mean, movies are so collaborative in their nature. The purest form of this movie was when James Cameron wrote the script, right? And then from there on, you end up going through a million, billion, trillion different compromises, halfway points, changes, because the thing you want to do isn't necessarily the thing you can do, right? There are budget constraints or things happen, just whatever. And so when you get to see a version that is just a little closer to what the director or to what the writer actually envisioned, that, that's always kind of nice. I like getting, getting closer to the welder. I think that's kind of cool. One of the things I always love is when Ripley goes back for Newt and she goes back into the station, the computer voice comes on, warning, 15 minutes. It's 15 actual minutes between that alert and when the station actually blows up, you can time it. It's 15 minutes on screen. Like the fact that he, he pulled that off, like he never put a cherry on it. He just like, he just like, okay, it's a 15 minute thing. And I have verified it. You go back there from the moment they, they start off, it's 15 minutes. The action on the screen you see, it takes 15 minutes in real time to watch from that point in the story to when it blows up. And like, wow. like he stopped like, no, no, we're actually going to have a 15 minute action sequence just, just because I'm James Cameron. It's like, he does these kinds of things and you know, bless him for it. Like nobody else does this sort of stuff. I love that, you know? And, and like he could have ended the movie when they went back up to the ship. But no, he's like, uh-uh, one more because I love you guys. Queen fight. You know? This is alien. Yeah, exactly. You know, it just, it just, he just keeps throwing it on. Like, man, like I didn't deserve this. Like you just start thinking that after this, <laughs> after a while with this movie. Yeah, that movie just ended like, oh, that was a nice little 10-year-old girl we met. Let's just leave her there. You know, like, <laughs> <could've been> the <laughs> movie. <laughs> he gets to go. Yeah, you know. But even like, you know, once I get back up to the ship, you know, that could have been like a, you know, Bishop, I had you all wrong. It's okay. Not bad for a human Ripley. Great. Well, let's get in the, let's get in the crowd sleep and go. Okay. We get to sleep all the way home. Sure, honey. We get to sleep all the way home. Duh, roll credits. They did it. Like that, you know, I wouldn't have been like, oh, you know what this movie really could have used though? Like a forklift fist fight with the queen. That would have been great. That probably would not have occurred to me. Right. <laughs> well, well, real quick speed round. Let, let's get back to, let's get back to, to Bishop because he is a great character and, it's a great kind of a reverse heel turn because we know what Ash did in the first movie. And we're like, oh man, and he's so weird and so creepy. He's like, you know, looking at the face huggers, like magnificent. You're like, yeah, that's, that's weird. But then he turns out to be, you know, the most trustworthy of good guys, right? And that's such a great, such a great turn. One of my favorite little bits of, from him is actually something that Chris, you pointed out to me many years ago, which is this moment when Bishop is getting ready to, they're putting him in that tunnel to go, you know, sh shove your fingers through. Yeah. Yeah. Vasquez racks his pistol and gives it to him. And he takes, he, he grabs it and goes, what, what? And he looks at it and like, yeah, no. And he just gives it back. Like, Asimov's first law, man. I don't do goods, right? And, he just, and that's it. And it was just this simple little thing. It was like, it just told so much about what kind of protagonist Bishop is. That's not what he's programmed for. Like, he's not even going to take a gun, even though he's doing the most dangerous job in the whole story. And I, th I thought that was a really cool bit. It wasn't really crazy called out. You had it, you like, blink and you miss it. But... It was, a, it was a cool little detail yeah. that I like quite a bit. Although I, I, I'm still kind of wondering why in the world the company would not provide synthetic. That just seems like a no-brainer. Right? Like Instead, they sent Carter J. Burke. <laughs> Dumbasses. I can think that Carter J. Burke sent himself. Possibly. Maybe he didn't yeah, have the swing. Well, yeah, yeah like it's kind of yeah. off the books. Because, you know, you think about this, like there's a lot of theories that the Marines really kind of aren't the best that the Colonial Marines had to offer. Like they kind of screw up in a bunch of different ways. And you've got Gorman, who's super green and not good at what he does. And you've got a bunch of cowboys and that are just acting these like loosey-goosey conscripts as opposed to sleek professional soldiers. And you kind of wonder like, well, maybe that's what Burke wanted. Like maybe he wanted somebody, a group of guys, just good That's enough, just good enough to get in there and get infected, but not good enough to actually, you know, take control of the situation. Because ah. you think about this in modern military terms, they don't send a whole lot out there. I mean, yeah, they've got a lot of firepower, right? But ultimately, it's like a squad of guys. It's not even a full platoon of guys. It's it's like twelve guys right. total. And granted, maybe that's a narrative constriction, but there's not a lot of redundancy in this strike force that goes out there, right? A lot can easily go wrong and cripple it. And you're like, well, why is that the case? And it could just be like, well, Burke couldn't really justify any more of it. And I got the feeling like maybe he, this whole thing was his whole deal. And that might be why Bishop is just a bog standard Android, right? He just, well, there's no special directive because he doesn't need one because Burke is, is the directive. He doesn't need a robot second guessing him, you know, and all that sort of stuff. I, that's, that's what I kind of came with over time. And that might just be headcanon, but I know, it's it's kind of like widely shared headcanon. Yeah, there had to be something up there. Absolutely. Yeah. Other favorite characters. Can we talk about Hudson for a second? 
course we can talk about Hudson. <laughs> how, how can we? Not if we can, it's, it's game over, man. <laughs> game over. <laughs> I was wondering when we were going to get to that. Yeah. Yeah. Never have we seen. So one thing I love about this movie is you see all these heroes who get their booties kicked for most of the movie, right? That's kind of a script flipping there. But Hudson is so great because I have never seen a character like lose his composure in such a charismatic fashion. Like I kind of enjoyed, I kind of enjoyed <laughs> watching him fall apart, even though as a viewer, I'm jangled. I'm like, man, our heroes need to pull it together. And you got Hudson dropping the greatest one-liners about how screwed they really are. <laughs> it was just so much fun to watch him be that guy. <laughs> oh, what are we going to do, man? <laughs> I was short. I was four weeks and out and I'm going to buy it on this rock. Like, yeah, dude, you are. <laughs> my my second yeah. favorite line from Hudson is ah! <laughs> when Bishop's just moving the knife on the finger. Yeah, <laughs> it's so He's good. So great. I love watching him fall. And like, you know, when they're outside after like the thing has just crashed, <laughs> like. He's having this breakdown right in front of this little girl. <laughs> it's just so funny. Does not care. And, and, Doesn't and, care and like, at all. Oh, it's great because like Ripley and New are having this hardcore, clearly, here are the heroes of the scene emerging. They're the, the survivors. survivors. They're going to handle this. And it's happening. It's in the background is Hudson and Burke going after each other. And it's like, I don't know, maybe we'll sing a, make a campfire, sing a few songs. How about that, huh? And like, they're both just losing their minds. It's so good. It's so so good. Maybe you haven't noticed, but we just got our asses kicked. Yeah, it's so it's so good. Yeah, you know, if we talk about Hudson, we, you also you have to mention Hicks because oh. like, Hicks is. If you talk about the fact that the squad was not the best in the place, Hicks is yeah. clearly the outlier for that. Right? Like, this yes. is a guy who's a professional and he knows. Yes. And I and I think I I, I had actually sent you a message, Bill, about this, which was. Um, or Michael Biehn, like this guy was the like a a lead in two of the biggest movies of the 1980s of the 80s it got him almost nowhere really i mean it got him into a character yeah. you know character actor like yeah this I guy mean, is i don't know but but he was a character actor in some of the biggest movies of the 90s you take harrison ford right and he stars in indiana jones and, and star wars and it translates into him being harrison ford and this guy is in you know aliens and terminator and it translates into him being in the abyss you know what i mean like that that's Nobody wants to bring up Vasquez, huh? Well, I was gonna. We need to talk about Vasquez because oh, my girl, she's fantastic. That right there, that's my favorite line in the movie. When oh, uh, has anybody ever comes up you know, to her and he you says, for a "Have you ever been mistaken for a man?" Yeah. <laughs> Perfect delivery. She just gets no of you. Like it's oh, she great. It. <laughs> <laughs> and and, and she, she is uh, in, of course, Terminator Two as as, as, as Janine, uh, the as, mom. I mean, there's actually a trope named after Vasquez, which is Vasquez always dies, right? And that, that, that's the trope. Basically, the Vasquez always dies trope is essentially the most capable, hard-hitting badass of the story is inherently doomed, in part because right. that's the story's way of letting you know that we're really not kidding around here, and if this person can die, anybody can die. Now, the way they dispatched Vasquez is kind of weird because at that point, we have ample evidence that anybody can die in this movie, <laughs> Right, like, like we, we don't need to lose Vasquez to know that everybody's in dire peril here. She has some great final moments. I mean, just like her holding the line in the op center, and then in that great scene in the, the air ducts, kicks that alien's head against the wall, and just pop, pop, pop. <laughs> like, it's just like hardcore, man, hardcore. Vasquez is the she best. Takes Gorman, then the closing line is, "You always were an asshole." Asshole Gorman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know. Like, <laughs> no, it's it's so cool. But if you notice, Gorman hits the dead man switch on the grenade, right? And she puts her hand. Then she puts her double hands on her. If you notice, that's the same move she did with Drake early in the movie. So like at that at the last moment, she she gives Gorman like a sign of like camaraderie and respect. Like oh, and again, it's a a blink and you miss it kind of a thing, you know, be like, oh, that's so cool, man. Like these guys are, they, when they redeem themselves, they redeem themselves really, really well, which I thought was just a great moment. Like you lose them, but you lose them in terrific ways. I was proud. You know what? Yeah, you know, he redeemed himself. He, he did. I, I love that. You know, like he's, he's the victim of the whole like green guy thing. Like he gets knocked out in the first fight, you know, like yeah. he's beating himself up over it, you know? And they're like, finally he gets his chance to like go yeah. out with like the biggest badass in the movie. Yeah. Left, and it's yeah. like, <laughs> He performs, she performs, every, yeah. uh, everybody does what they're supposed to do, and they go out heroes. Gorman's thing is that he's simply an, an inexperienced officer and not a great soldier, right? But, like, 
he doesn't show any kind of moral failings. That's not necessarily true. He does have overconfidence and like he's one of the ones that tells Ripley to shut up initially when he's doing and he's in the throes of being a bad officer. But second act Gorman is the guy who gets involved. He defers to Corporal Hicks because he realizes he's no longer controlling. He's okay That's what with a that. good commissioned officer does with his NCOs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if right. he wants to get back home again. He steps back and and he goes back for Vasquez. It wasn't like he and Vasquez got caught together necessarily. Vasquez was hurt right. and he went back to see if he could help her and doomed himself in the process. But it's like, that was a pretty heroic thing he did. You know, he slaps Hicks on the shoulder. He's like, go. And like, and he didn't do it necessarily knowing he was going to die. He's like, I'm just going to go and pull her back. And like, you know, Gorman, thumbs up, buddy. Well done. Well done. You know, poor one out for a pwn, by the way. <laughs> uh, that's what I was going to say. I mean, look, there are a ton yes. of Greek characters in this movie. You can have an hour long conversation, not even mention a pwn. And a pwn is awesome. the best. <laughs> what do you want me to do? <laughs> Fetch your slippers for you? No, he's. Look into my eye. Look into my eye. <laughs> like, Hudson, come here. Come here. <laughs> yeah. So great. He's like Arlie Ermy in space. Like, he's just the best. Like, you just, <laughs> like, I love when the crowd pods open up, right? And, and there's a, the establishing shot of, of, of A. He sits up and immediately puts a cigar in his mouth. Like, it's like he went to sleep with cigar in hand. <laughs> so he just yeah. pop that all right. It's like before he was awake, he's got his hat on, is like marched up and down bare chested, getting these guys out, out of bed. Like it was just such a he was such a great, a great sergeant. You know, he was just a great character. He was just, just fantastic. He's like the the qualified tough guy who's taking orders and just like that that critical middle link of a unit. Like he was just great. And so he had to die quick because it, it, you have to be bereft of an apone to have the drama, right? You you need it. But it's just it's it's a hard cost to bear because he's such a great character. You wish you could have watched him more, you know. But supposedly a deleted scene is not in the special edition. It was in the novelization, where at one point when Ripley goes back into the hive to get Newt, she comes across Burke, who's cocooned against yes. the wall. Ah, and, yes, and, yes. And I think she, yeah. leave, but I think she leaves him a grenade so he can blow himself up. Well, wait a minute, like you know, how fast does the cocooning dissolve this actually work? We don't really know. I mean, they they cocooned up Newt pretty quick, but as we could see, they held on to her, impregnated her right away. You know, and <laughs> wait, wait. In the book, Burke gets a grenade to blow himself. Like, who would give that guy a grenade? Like, he is hell bent on getting out of there with. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Probably would have blown himself out. Oh, I'm getting on board the ship now. You know, like it's probably why it didn't make it in either version of the movie because it's like Ripley could could show some mercy, but like she's not stupid. I mean, I can see maybe Ripley putting a bullet in him. Yeah. But now, the, like, the, here's a, here's a grenade. Maybe you could take me out too. Let's just. But you know, I trust you've been through enough. Yeah. I, I trust you've learned your right. lesson, Carter. Here, have a grenade. His death scene. No. His death scene in the movie, as it is, reminds me of our last conversation, which is when um, Joe Pesci in, in Goodfellas, when he realizes that he's going to get whacked, has that moment of uh, like that. <sighs> that is the same moment that Burke has when the alien. And he just kind of has this little exhalation, and it's, he doesn't scream. He just oh, like, it's just like <laughs> oh, geez. That's that. Yeah. Exactly. Oh, I failed. Yeah. Like, you know, it's just sort of like. Uh... Yeah. His fight. His last words are "Do something, Gorman," and then leaves the room. <laughs> it's like, like not great last words, man. Like you picked the the wrong guy to have the last words with, you know. But before we wrap up, a final thought. Aliens wasn't the biggest movie of 1986. In fact, by box office receipts, I don't think it was even in the top five of that year, which is kind of incredible to imagine. But it's since become a cornerstone of the science fiction uh, action-adventure geek community, and it's been hugely influential among creators ever since. You know, the homages, tributes, shout-outs, and straight-up rip-offs of Aliens uh, have occurred too many times to count in subsequent movies, TV, comics, video games, and elsewhere. And, you know, while the film franchise that followed Aliens has proved to be fairly divisive amongst franchise fans, and there's a reason why I forbade our discussion of Alien 3 and beyond this episode, there's something to be said for something that's so powerful in its concept and its development and its execution that it inspires people to try to build upon it, even perhaps when they shouldn't. You know, James Cameron was a fan of Alien and had this really cool idea for how we could take the story in a different direction. And it doesn't really matter if other attempts in that vein have not been quite as successful as Cameron's. I think what matters is how Cameron took on the often lowly job of making a sequel and never allowed himself to be constrained by the notion that somehow he was not supposed to meet or exceed 
the shadow in which he worked. I think anyone who has followed Cameron's other films can see how hard driving and uncompromising a filmmaker he is. But his work in creating one of the greatest sequels ever really stands out as a case point that just because you're playing with somebody else's toys doesn't mean you can't be just freaking awesome at it. We often complain that Hollywood is obsessed with sequels and reboots, and we tend to use that as exhibit A in the notion that Hollywood is officially out of ideas. But I think if Aliens tells us anything, it's that making a sequel isn't necessarily the enemy of greatness. A willingness to sign your name to mediocre work is the enemy of greatness. And I think that's true whether we're talking about Ellen Ripley's fateful second encounter with the Xenomorphs or whether we're talking about life in general. I think you know, in a world that's full of Burks and Gormans and Hudsons, we should be a Vasquez or be a Hicks or be a Ripley. Otherwise, it's game over, man. Game over. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com. <laughs>